Would you turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And and fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more for the teaching of your word. It's, it's, it's fullness, it's simplicity, it's agreement in all its parts. It's wonderful to read the Gospels and then to read Acts and to see the message is the same over and again. Oh, Lord, if that teaches us anything, it's that we need to be hearing the same things. We need to be told the same truths, for we are apt uh, to disbelieve. We're slow to believe. We're, we're hard of heart. We need you, Holy Spirit, to get through to us. And then having gotten through to us, to get through to us again, for we're apt to stray. And we ask you to draw us back again, week by week, with Uh, And through the preaching of the gospel, along with so many other means. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke continues in these early chapters of Acts to paint a portrait for us of the early church as she then was. The church as she was taking on this new and glorious form. Luke's characteristic method, it seems to me, to be uh, to state uh, certain things in a summary fashion and then to give us particular examples. And so he moves from the general to the particular and then from the particular back to the general. And that's what we have here. He told us in verse 43, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders. This is chapter two. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That's one of his summary statements. That's a general statement of what was happening in those days. But then in chapter 3, he gives a a particular example of what he was talking about, the kinds of signs and wonders, uh, the response that resulted. But the first thing that strikes us from this passage is something which uh, I admit is almost a scandal to the modern uh, ear in light of our familiarity with uh, the teaching of the books of Galatians and Romans and Colossians is, again, as a first point, the ties with Judaism. The thing that strikes us as strange here, and yet uh, it's unavoidable that we must deal with this, 
that these men were worshiping in the temple. They were observing the prayers. They were observing the sacrifices. Now, that's strange. At least I can say that's strange to me because, well, I was saying last week that the church was taking on this new and glorious form. The new wine was being poured into new wineskins. And yet what we discover is that, well, there was still something There was still something of the old that was lingering and remaining. This is something that is curious uh, to us. It's strange. As I say, it's almost a scandal. We ask, how could that be? F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, The apostles continued to live as observant Jews, attending the set services of worship in the Jerusalem temple. Machen, uh, in a little article he wrote on the early church, Uh, I read from it last time. Here's another quote. He says, the new Christian community did not at first, let me underline those two words, did not at first regard itself as distinct from Judaism. The disciples continued in diligent observance of the temple worship. Though in reality, Christianity was something, uh, was from the beginning a new dispensation it appeared to the careless observer to be nothing more than a Jewish sect. Even the disciples themselves were unaware of any break with their ancestral religion. I don't know if I agree entirely with that, that last statement. The disciples themselves were unaware of any break. I, I think they were. I think he's overstating the case. Nevertheless, uh, you do have uh, a, a strong sense, uh, let us see, of continuity. With the old in the new. Well, what are we to make of this? The fact that there was this new glorious dispensation that was dawning. And yet they were worshiping in the courts of the temple. They were observing uh, its services as devout Jews. Proclaiming the name of Jesus to the Jews. Well, the first thing that I would note is the priority of the Jews. Something that we ought to appreciate. Something which is... Evident, certainly, in the Gospels, Jesus preached uh, to the Jews. He was seeking out the lost sons of Israel. He he really left uh, the work of evangelism beyond that to his uh, disciples. Indeed, that's what he tells them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That's where he starts. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But you see, the center, the starting point was to be Jerusalem. That was, well, that was the explicit plan of God. For all that God had done and all that he had said in the Old Testament, he didn't just set that aside all in one brush. He still was intensely interested in those people, the sons of Abraham. We find the Apostle Paul saying this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Stressing the priority again of the Jews. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We might stop there, but listen to the next thing he says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Salvation comes to the Jews first. There's a kind of priority. Again, if, if you are comfortable with your Bibles, if you read the Old Testament along with the New, there's nothing surprising here. This is, if anything, Exactly what you would expect, not that salvation would be limited to the Jews in any sense, but that surely they would become the focus and the starting point of this new dispensation. And that's precisely what we find. But this was also something even beyond that. 
there was a kind of overlap in the covenants or in the dispensations where for a brief period, again, going back to Machen's quote, that, that little phrase, at first, I don't want to overstress the point. This is not something that continued for very long. But at first, at the dawning of the new, there was a kind of overlap. We even get the sense of that in the Gospels. We ask, well, when exactly did the new covenant begin? It isn't always easy to say. Even we who have the hindsight of 2,000 years of history, looking back on this, trying to define the precise moment. Was it at the cross? Was it when Christ came into the world? Was it at Pentecost? When can we say exactly uh, that uh, the, the, the turn of the age occurred. Well, you see, even then, uh, we are admitting that there was something of an overlap in the ages, the old and the new, for a brief period in history overlapping. With the passing of time, things became much clearer, uh, even to these first Christians. And as we th- see things developing in Acts, and as we read beyond this in our New Testaments, the picture becomes Clearer and clearer and clearer, even, as I say, to these men. Although, uh, again, disagreeing with Machen, I don't ever like to say those words, but disagreeing with Machen, I think it was a little clearer to them than he admits, even at first. Well, I would argue that far from finding fault with them for this or even apologizing for them for this, that there were still lingering remnants of the old as they were entering into the new. This isn't something we should feel sorry about. In reality, it was more or less inevitable that, that this should happen. Things were gradually becoming clear, even to the apostles themselves, not all at once. Don't we say we believe in the, the doctrine of progressive revelation? Well, things are, uh, even in these radical uh, turning points, things are still becoming progressively clearer and clearer and clearer to the people of God. And so that principle holds even now at this decisive turning point. The fact is that these men were still adjusting to the new reality, and they really had been ever since Christ had come into the world. What did it mean to say that a new dispensation had dawned? What would it mean for uh, the church to consist no longer of Jews but of Gentiles? As I say, that is something you will find becomes a kind of focal point of the book of Acts. These first Christians grappling with what that reality meant, especially Peter. I could give an illustration of this from the time of the Reformation. Uh, As you know, I I hope you all know... uh, Luther wrote a famous work, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The church was in those days in captivity. In captivity to what? To the Roman Catholic Church. In bondage. Not at living in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And along comes men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and so many others. And, well, the light of the gospel began to shine again. And the church experienced a wonderful revival and a reformation. But if you read the life of Luther, you'll find uh, that while he was in the Wartburg Castle... Uh, being essentially protected to save his life, that the reforms in Wittenberg were speeding along in a very rapid way. This is very early on in the Reformation. And this was very unsettling to Luther. And so at the risk of his own life, he came out of hiding and he returned to Wittenberg and he preached what were called the Invocabit Sermons, seven sermons. And what he did was to rebuke uh, the, the leaders of the churches and even the, the, the church itself 
for carelessly proceeding essentially at a breakneck speed in implementing the reforms. He was saying, in essence, you're going too fast. Gradual is best, if only for the weaker in faith. His preaching was very similar to that of Paul, who was always contending to the strong to, to be mindful of the weak. In fact, if, if you look at what he says in places like Romans chapter 14, you find him dealing with this very issue. The whole question of the observance of uh, some of the Old Testament laws. He's saying uh, to the strong, you've got to be mindful of the weak. Don't run over the weak. Gradual is best. Too much reform, too fast, will only stun the people. It will not help them. That's a principle, by the way, that always holds true. It always holds true. But I would also argue beyond that, that the temple became the center of their evangelistic activity. Just as we find later on in Acts that Paul would seek out the synagogues and he would preach to them there, just as Jesus himself had done. So it wasn't just that they were observant Jews who were observing the rituals, but remember, they were preaching. They were beginning to worship God in this new way even there. Not only in the temple, but Luke tells us they went from the temple to, uh, and then uh, from house to house. And rightly so, that that should become the starting point of uh, and the nucleus of this new evangelistic enterprise, for we have already seen that they were to be witnesses first in Jerusalem and then from there to branch out into the whole of the world. But realizing this, and really I've been saying this already, but let me try to state it as clearly as I can. We understand why this constituted one of the greatest problems that faced the early church, uh, if not the greatest uh, the question again was, not only what of the old, but what of the new? Well, what are we to do with the Jews and their practices? Not only that, but what are we to do with the Gentiles as they come in without the slightest clue of the old covenant? Never having observed a single law of Moses. Well, what are we to say to them? So you had converted Jews, you had converted Gentiles. And you're trying to speak to both of them at once. We find an example of this in Acts chapter 15 where they were dealing with the Judaizers. They were saying you must observe the, the laws of Moses to be saved. In many ways you would think, well, that's a very natural thing for a Jew to say. We might even imagine in some sense uh, the disciples saying that. And yet it really, that really was to overturn the whole of the gospel of grace. And so they repudiated it as strongly as they could. And they sought to deal with the problem as pastorally as they could. But there you see they're dealing with the very issue. The Jerusalem Council dealing with this. And then you find it in Romans. You find it in Galatians. You find it in Hebrews. You find it in, well, you find it, I think, in every epistle of the New Testament. The great problem which the early church faced. And then beyond that, as you come to Romans 11, you find the Apostle Paul saying, well, clearly the Jews have been rejected. But has God forsaken his people? Is he done with the Jews? Uh, all of that. You will find in the New Testament and soon in, in the morning series, we'll deal with that question, not just in Romans 11, but Romans 9 through 11. Is there any hope? Is there any future for the Jews? Well, I confess that the issue is still a very perplexing one. You can read the New Testament all your life. I've been reading it all of my life, and I'm still perplexed by this. I'm still somewhat scandalized to find these men observing uh, the sacrifices and the prayers of the temple. And yet I can only say because of that, that I look with greater interest to the chapters that follow 
in the book of Acts as I find these men grappling with it themselves under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing. But really, as a second point, the, the, the main thing here is the miracle which occurs. And we can look at this particular example as a picture of a broader ministry, a broader ministry that uh, Luke painted in verse 43 of chapter 2. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That's the general statement. We're considering, therefore, the miracles of the apostles. The first thing that I would note about this is this, a question. Have you ever noticed, and I never thought to put it this way until I I once read J.I. Packer say this, although uh, as soon as he said it, I realized it was true, or as soon as he asked the question. And that is, have you ever noticed how rare the, the miracles are in the Bible, even in the Bible? You say, wait a second, the Bible's full of miracles. No, it isn't. It really isn't. There's very, very few instances of miracles, even in the Bible. And, and an even smaller number of men who performed them. Very few, if you actually took the time to count those who were able to do so. Moses, Elijah, Elisha. Was there anyone else in the Old Covenant? I don't think so. Then there was Jesus and the apostles, but that's it. That's all you have. A very, very small circle it's wrong to assume in other words that miracles were common even as god was speaking to men it's wrong to assume this what is what is god doing in a miracle well he's doing something unusual that's the first thing we have to see something exceptional it's an unusual display or demonstration of power and authority something noteworthy is happening Uh, One of the ways that men have tried to describe this is that the miracles were like enacted parables or or enacted sermons for men to see, for men to experience. And this is Peter curing a lame man, the first instance of a particular miracle in Acts. An amplification, as I've said already, of chapter 2, verse 43. You not only see that A miracle occurred, but you find the same response. Verse 43, fear came upon them all, or verse 10 of chapter 3, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. People were aware that something striking and unusual was occurring. Another connection we might draw with an earlier verse in Acts is what is said at the very beginning. When Luke says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Well, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that it's full of the preaching. Well, we read it in Mark 2. He was preaching to them, but then he performed a miracle. All through the Gospels, we find Jesus teaching and doing. What was he doing? He was performing miracles. Clearly, I think that's what Luke is referring to. The preaching and the miracles of Jesus Christ. And what we discover, we've seen the preaching of Peter, uh, such that we could say Jesus continued to teach through the teaching of the apostles. But now we discover that Jesus also continued to do through the miracle working of the apostles. In other words, just as we see the preaching of the apostles as an extension of the preaching of Jesus Christ, so too we ought to see the miracles of the apostles as an extension of of the miracles of Jesus Christ. He was continuing to do. He was continuing to act. He wasn't finished with this world. And so 
One of the things that we ought to notice about the miracles of the apostles straight away is the relation of their miracles to Jesus miracles. Certainly, we ought to notice the similarities. We, we are able, based upon the two texts we read, Mark chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, to say, look at these two things. They're entirely similar. Jesus cures a lame man. He enables him to walk in a way no one could. So Peter does the same thing. Isn't it amazing to see the same power, the same authority is clearly at work in both incidents. And that's something we're meant to see. And yet at the same time, as soon as we say that, we ought to say and to notice at the same time the difference. We can never speak of the ministry of the apostles without noting the essential difference between what they did and what Jesus did. However similar uh, their acts are in nature. For what Jesus can do immediately, I say to you, arise. I say to you, your your sins are forgiven. He He can do so by the power of his own word. These men did immediately in the name of another. It's in the name of Jesus. Peter looks upon the man and he says, rise and walk. It's very important that we should see this, for this is no small difference. The apostles, let us always see, were mere men. I I remember Dr. Gaffin saying in seminary, and at times I find my heart resisting this truth, but, well, let me say it to you and see if your heart can accept it. The apostles were not super Christians. They were just Christians like you and me. That's all they were. They were just men and women. Well, they were not men and women, but they were just men. They were ordinary men like you and I, endowed with supernatural authority, admittedly, in a way that we will never know that they were just men. With the temptation that we may sometimes feel, even today, is to, is to venerate them, even to worship them. But the real point of the miracles was to worship Jesus. To become aware of his lordship, not that of the apostles. Well, then, what was the nature of their miracles? First off, let us admit that they were given authority to heal. There's no need to qualify that at all. Supernatural power was at work in them. For us to say that we don't look for miracles in the same way today does not mean that we have That we have begun to think like liberals, that we've begun to say, you know, we don't believe in the supernatural. That isn't what we're saying, because we're still saying we do believe in the supernatural. We believe every word that was written in the New Testament. We believe in their testimony. We believe that indeed miracles occurred through them. They were workers of great miracles. We accept that entirely. John and Peter and the rest, like Moses and Elijah and Elijah. And Jesus, we already saw this in the Gospels. In that sense, this was nothing new. The power of these men to heal. Though, do we remember what Jesus told them when they were elated, coming back to him saying, you know, uh, the, the demons are subject even to us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that you have this power. Rejoice rather in this, that your names are written in the book of life. There you see Jesus, just as he did in Mark chapter 2, saying, do you see what the real issue at stake is? You see, even then they were prone to make too much of their own powers, their own miracles. And, and we might wonder by now were they healed of that error. Jesus was telling them, keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is this. There's salvation in the name of Jesus. And so these men had this power to heal. 
And yet, still, they were not able to heal at will. That is the wrong impression, if that's the impression you get. Rather, at certain key moments, it became clear to them that the Holy Spirit was about to do something great through them. And how this differs from the so-called and the idea of a healing service today. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but I have. My time in the charismatic church. That isn't what the apostles were doing here. They were going about their business uh, they were preaching the gospel, and at certain key moments, the Holy Spirit came upon them with power and gave them power to heal. Not at will. What was the Holy Spirit doing through them? Well, the miracles function in the same way that they did in the ministry of Jesus, as signs. They were pointers to something greater than themselves. They were signs of the kingdom of God, of a new covenant. Do you remember what Jesus said when the disciples of John said, are you the one or should we look for another? He says, well, don't you see what's happening? Uh, don't you see that the signs of the new covenant are, are at work? And in the list that he gives, he says that the lame are enabled to walk, as in Mark 2, as here. Here is a sign of the dawning of a new covenant. But what about miracles today? I've already said we ought not to look for these things, though we're not in that denying the reality of the supernatural in the days of the New Testament. We accept that fully. Well, it's a very interesting question. It's a question some of you have asked me. What about miracles today? I think it's safe to say at the very least that we are not entitled to expect anything like this today. A man looking at a layman and say, I command you to arise. Why? Well, because this was something unique. This was something exceptional. Consider what was happening here. Again, it was the turning of the ages, the dawning of a new age. But even in the days of the New Testament, if you just go on a few years, you will see that this was not even carried on for the duration of the writing of the New Testament period. And so it does not become the norm. And yet that should not trouble us. For healing was but a picture of that which remains. Let me say that again. This is the key point. Healing as through the apostles, miraculously, was but a picture of that which remains. And so that becomes the next point and the third point. That this whole incident, as with all the miracles in all of the Bible, clarify for us certain key issues. Certainly we could say, uh, at the very least, that this was a wonderful display of the mercy of God. We think of the blind of the blind beggar, blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what was, uh, what was happening here. It was just a display of God's mercy, plain and simple. It was more, but let us say that much at least. A man who had been crippled from his birth. He wasn't given a few dollars, if we could put it in that way. He was given the ability to walk. God was merciful to him. But let me tell you what it wasn't, and then I'll tell you what it really was. It wasn't about money. The miracle had nothing to do with money. This, this miracle, in fact, has a way of stressing this very strongly and clarifying the point to us. The kingdom of God is not about money. You know, when God said, uh, he tells us in the early church that they were gathering together their funds. He isn't saying, you know, they gathered so much funds that they were able to relieve the poor in the area. In fact, what do you find Peter saying here? He's saying, you know, I don't have any money. There isn't enough for you. That isn't the picture of the early church. There was, this was not some grand campaign of social justice. There was barely enough even to care for those within the church itself. Money was not the issue. 
And we are fascinated, fascinated to see Peter's response here. In a sense, you might ask the question, could he not have simply gone back to that common purse and, and pulled out a few, uh, a few pieces of silver? Why didn't he? Well, I think it's fair to say at the very least that he wasn't entitled to do so. But also because, well, he had something better. He wanted it to be clear, and it was clear to him. And it ought to be clear to us that the real issue, the real pressing need of this man was not his lack of money. It was something more. I would just share with you as an aside uh, a fascinating story uh, from F.F. Bruce in his commentary. He tells the story like this. Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II when the latter was counting a large sum of money. You see, Thomas, the Pope said, the church can no longer say silver and gold. Have I none? True, Holy Father, was the reply. Neither can she now say rise and walk. Well, let us see whether in the case of Peter or in the case of Aquinas, money isn't the main thing. It's not the issue. That isn't what men really need. Nor was it even primarily about the fact that the man was lame. It wasn't his sickness. That wasn't the main issue. And that may sound strange, but it's actually true. The miracle is never the main thing. In the miracles... The healing itself is always secondary, never primary. And if you ever make the healing primary, you've missed the point. Indeed, do you remember what Jesus says about those who crave and desire signs? You almost get the sense that Jesus was sorry he even had to perform them. There's something almost dangerous about them, considered in themselves as their own end. Because we're always prone in our unbelief to make too much of the miracles, just like we're prone to make too much of money. Jesus is warning against this. He's willing, if only because of our propensity to disbelieve, to perform them. But blessed are they, he says, who have not seen and still believe. You see, it isn't to our disadvantage that we don't see miracles in our day. Jesus is saying, oh, they are blessed who do not see anything. Yet they still have faith. They're not ensnared by a sinful craving for signs. No, the miracle is never the main thing, not even here. What then was at issue? Well, I would say three things. For one thing, the authority of the apostles. An apostle was someone who was endowed with authority from God in a way uh, that was unusual. It was unique. This was evident in their their miracles. God was working mightily through them. These were the men who were carrying on the ministry of Christ. These were the men through whom God would write the New Testament. The closing books of the Bible from which we benefit so richly. He was confirming their authority through mighty works. They were signs, confirmatory signs of their power. And of their authority in an unmistakable way. Do you remember how John describes the signs of Jesus? So that you may believe. God is stooping down. He's lisping to us. He's helping us to believe. He's dealing with us according to the hardness of our own hearts like Pharaoh. He's saying, I want to help you. I want you to see as clearly as you can. I don't want you to harden your hearts in unbelief. I want you to accept the testimony of my son and, and his apostles. And the miracles as confirming their authority confirmed the kind of authority they possessed. It was authority that they received directly from God, from above. An authority which, was, which came down from heaven and rested upon them. It was authority in the name of Jesus, not their own. An authority which was invested on them from on high. 
beyond that, it, it is clear that the miracles demonstrated in a decisive way the truth of their claim. And what was the truth of their claim? The Lordship of Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. Do you remember what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2? He says, so that you may know the Son of God has authority to forgive sins. And which, by the way, is, is easier to say, rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven. Which, which is easier? Well, it's easier, Jesus is saying, to perform a miracle. And, and even then, he is declaring, which is the greater work? The greater work is to forgive sins. And that is the work that Jesus came to do. And it's the authority that he alone possesses. And that is the authority that he invests in the disciples, not that they could in their own names uh, forgive sins. Paul says, you know, what is this talk of I've been baptized in this, this man's name or that man's name? I, I'm a disciple of this apostle. No, I, I'm talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For that, for that matter, he says, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you so that you wouldn't be confused. So that you wouldn't connect your salvation too strongly with me. I came preaching the cross. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. It's he alone who has authority to forgive sins. And that's, well, that's what they preached. And through the miracles, the Lord was confirming the truth of their claim. That there is indeed salvation in the name of Jesus. Just as this man was enabled to walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, arise. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness for everyone, even for you. Yes, to the Jew first, I say that even today. But also to the Greek, that is to the Gentile, to you and me. It's extended even to us. Forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. Even today, that's what the miracles point to. Every time we read of them, that's what we're meant to think of. Listen to how Ritterboss puts it. He says, now he's speaking of the miracles of Jesus, but we could equally say the same thing of the apostles. He says, connected with the above is the fact that in the whole of Jesus' power to work miracles, the coming of the kingdom is realized and is evidence of its presence. He goes on, they make visible and audible the fulfillment of the promises, the coming of the great era of salvation. Jesus' miracles reveal the coming of the kingdom of God. I would add to that, the apostles' miracles reveal the coming of the kingdom of God. But then as a third point, they were clear and compelling signs of a new covenant, as, as Joel had predicted Joel had said, when the, when the new day of the Lord will come and the Spirit is poured out, you will see great signs and wonders, such as we saw in the ministry of Jesus. But even now, through the ministry of the apostles, here was, uh, let us see, a flurry of activity which accompanied the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, precisely as God had predicted. It is also for this reason that we're entitled to say, well, the same flurry of activity doesn't continue. But it did continue in those days. It was a mark of these decisive new days. It was a sign of the new covenant. But if we go beyond that, we ought to notice the response of the man himself. That also tells us a great deal about what was going on here. It says that he was able to walk, he was leaping, and he was praising God. And I really want to stress that point. Yes, he experienced this miracle. Now he could walk. But what did he do as a result? He didn't run off and say, well, now, now I'm going to go on with sin with new vigor. Some people would do that. But now 
he began to praise God. And that's something that we read twice in the prior text. They were praising God. This was the great sign of salvation. The fact that men were saved is evidenced in the fact that they were praising God. Imagine the, the hard-hearted sinner praising God. The man who hated God, the man who loved his sin, forsaking sin because he loved God. Now the great thing in his heart is this, to praise God. I would put that above the fact that he could walk. Something even greater than that happened here. Something uh, far harder, far more glorious than a lame man made to walk. His heart was loosed. His sins were forgiven. He was made new. This was this man's conversion. He was brought into the church. He was added. He now, along with them, uh, was enabled to praise God from the heart. And the miracle did nothing more than point to that reality. Nothing more. This man, too, will one day lie in the grave. It wasn't the end of his sufferings. It wasn't the end of his afflictions. But it was the beginning uh, of everlasting life that he is enjoying even now. And so he praised God. Salvation led to worship in his case, as it always does. This is a point that Luke loves to stress about the early church. Equally, we see the aspect of witness, uh, the way in which this created uh, a stir. Again, we read at the end, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. He was something of a famous case. People knew about him. People were passing by him all the time, all these devout Jews, even the disciples themselves. They saw him. They had encountered him. And now suddenly they see him take on this new form. This was, we could say, a notable conversion. And notable conversions are the kind of things that men have always loved in every age. Uh, this was the kind of person you might write a kind of Christian biography. And indeed, we have a little Christian biography here in sacred scripture. We have an instance of the amazing testimony of God's grace to save in notable instances. And following this, there is the preaching of Peter. Uh, this, will be, uh, this will be the focus of the next sermon. But we notice that Peter doesn't waste the opportunity. And this again clarifies the real issue. He turns to the Jews and he says this in verse 19. This is the key. And I'll save it for next time. Uh, any kind of preaching on this verse. But he says, repent therefore and be converted. That your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, you, you could be healed too. He doesn't say that. He says, don't you see what God is doing? Don't you see your own sin in the picture of this man? Don't you see the need of repentance? And don't you see how fully and freely God would forgive you? If only you turn to him. That's the real point. That's what the miracle pointed to. And that's what Peter pointed to. The last point I would make, uh, and this is now two sermons from now, is how all of this led. You see how uh, people are amazed. They're wondering. They had a good reputation. And yet what happens as a result of this? Well, Peter's thrown in prison. And you see how persecution begins to arise on account of the truth. Not just on account of the miracle, but they couldn't stand what these men were saying. And look how bold, look how courageous they had become. And so as I close, I say this about the miracles, about this miracle. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Rejoice not that Peter had such power, nor that this man was able uh, to walk once again. But rejoice that their names and that his name and even that your name is written in the book of life. That's the main thing. Look to God that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The miracles were secondary in that sense. Any reading of Acts which makes them primary is a misreading. 
It leaves us with a false impression and gives us the wrong idea of what the church was in those days and what the church might learn from Acts today. Really, they should have the same exact impression upon us today as they did in those days. They should lead to the same types of sermons and preaching, the same types of rejoicing and worship. Oh, let us not as Reformed people despise the miracles as we find them in Acts. But let us see them for what they really are, that we are living in days of fulfillment. Amen. And let us return our praise to God as we stand together and sing hymn 291, hymn 291 from the Psalter hymnal.